And as always, in addition to welcoming those of you in attendance today, there are history enthusiasts all over the world who watch and listen to the recordings of these programs online. And that our banner lectures are only possible because of the generous support of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Virginia Historical Society members. If you enjoy these programs and are not a member of the Historical Society, it's very easy to join and you can do so at our website, www.vahistorical.org. And now for today's program. On August 21st, 1831, seven men launched what would become known as the Nat Turner Revolt. The rebels swept through Southampton County, recruiting slaves to their ranks and killing nearly five dozen white men, women, and children more than had ever been killed in any slave revolt in the history of the United States. Within two days, whites reestablished control over Southampton County. Examining the terrible choices faced by slaves and also the deep disagreements among whites about how to respond to the rebels, today's speaker will discuss new ways of thinking about Nat Turner, his revolt, Southampton County, and even American slavery itself. Patrick H. Breen is an associate professor of history at Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island, and the author of The Land Shall Be Deluged in Blood, a new history of the Nat Turner Revolt. He's published articles in the Journal of the Early Republic, the Virginia Magazine of History, History and Biography, and Oxford University Press's anthology, Nat Turner, A Slave Rebellion in History and Memory. With the release of the movie Birth of a Nation, how many of you have seen Birth of a Nation? Ah, oh, the new version of Birth of a Nation. <laughs> Thank you, far fewer. How many of you have seen the old version of Birth of a Nation? I still worry about you people sometimes. <laughs> anyway, with the release of the new version of Birth of a Nation, he has also written more popular pieces in Deadline and for the Smithsonian Magazine's website, which I encourage you to check out. When Patrick is not busy writing and researching Nat Turner, he's busy with his five children, although this year, is shaping up to be a bit easier because he's only coaching one of his children's basketball teams. So please, let's give a warm VHS welcome to Patrick Breen. I gotta silence my phone. Or not. <laughs> Thanks for that kind, kind introduction. Um, it's idiomatic that you can't make a, a silk purse out of a sow's ear, but I wonder if we just heard that pr saying proved wrong. Thanks also to the Virginia Historical Society to invite me to give this banner lecture honoring Charles F. Bryan Jr. Uh, thank you to the entire staff of the Virginia Historical Society, Liz Ogilvie, for promoting this talk. I'd also like to thank Bill Chapman from the Virginia Forum, who took some time away from working on an upcoming forum with Nate Parker to spread the word on this talk. And thank you for coming out to hear this talk. Um, for those of you who are golfers, and there might be one or two in the audience, I have to admit that this is something of a mulligan for me. 20 years ago or so, I was awarded an Andrew W. Mellon Fellowship that enabled me to spend some time working at Virginia Historical Society's wonderful research facilities. On that trip, I got to read a letter from an engineer at Fort Monroe who related to his family the intelligence of a revolt that had taken place in Southampton County. There were many instances of slaves defending their masters, and one poor fellow from the inconsiderate and almost unwarranted haste of whites was sadly rewarded. Assisted by his master and his son, the slave nobly fought with them against 20 of the blacks. After working for a week in the archives, finding nuggets like this, I was supposed to give a lecture on my research. And I was pretty nervous. 
I was a young graduate student, and it wasn't a large lecture, but it would be in front of people, including the likes of Nelson Lankford and Francis Pollard, people who knew Virginia history, knew the archives, and I think they would be able to just smell if I had anything to say about Southampton that they didn't already know. I hadn't given a lecture quite like this before, and the library of the Virginia Historical Society opens at 10, it still does, so I was there by no later than 10.05, but when I walked in, they looked at me funny. Weren't you supposed to give a research talk to our staff? I assured them I was ready to do that, but no, I was told. The talks had taken place. They happened at nine. Although I was, sure, I, I was sure that I made the mistake, and you can ask any of my kids, it's totally on me, um, I never got to give the talk. So when the invite came to give the banner lecture, I can tell you, <laughs> get that old paper out, ready to go. Um, I'm going to see if I can tell you something today about America's most famous and most important slave rebellion. Actually, today I want to talk about something different, uh, about what historians can bring to the topic. Um, making arguments from the documents, the documents like the one I just re referred to that I found in the Virginia Historical Society. Nat Turner's revolt is a really interesting event, and it's gotten loads of attention lately. America's most famous slave revolt, it is a historical event that somehow strangely has escaped the fate of being trapped in the history books. The way that most people encountered this revolt was once through a novel, and more recently has become through a movie. For those who are older than me, you may remember William Styron's 1967, The Confessions of Nat Turner, a book that caught the attention of a generation, in no small part because it ignited an enormous debate about slavery. For those younger than me, Nate Parker's current movie is a touchstone, although like Styron's novel, Birth of a Nation has also engendered its fair share of controversy. Both the novel and the movie uh, offer dramatic portraits of Nat Turner and his revolt. In both cases, by filling in material that is not in the sources, they're able to present engaging, although very different, views of Nat Turner and his revolt. For Styron, who tried to stay close to the material that existed, but when there were gaps, allowed himself to imagine whatever he liked, Turner was a deeply human and a deeply flawed figure. His religiosity gave him ways to struggle with sexual urges that pestered him. It was exactly this that Styron had made America's most famous slave rebel something of a sexual misfit bothered his critics. Actually, it was even more than that. Uh, Styron's returning to an old trope. He's imagining a black man, not any black man, but Nat Turner, lusting after a white woman. Styron's ima imagined that Turner was attracted to Margaret Whitehead, the one person who he did kill with his own hands during the revolt. And that infatuation with Margaret Whitehead got twisted and warped through his religious inspiration into a slave revolt. Well, infuriated by this appropriation, Styron's critics lambasted him for resorting to the same sexual language that D.W. Griffith used when he made his version of Birth of a Nation in 1915, for using the same sexually coded language that led to the deaths of so many hundreds of black men and boys through the years of Jim Crow. Not surprisingly, Nate Parker presents his Nat Turner in the new film, Birth of a Nation, in a remarkably different way. Nate Parker's Turner is religious, but it is his religion that gave him the opportunity to witness the full depra depravity of the slave system. As something of a slave circuit rider, Turner is in position to witness the sadistic tortures of black men and the wanton sexual exploitation of black women. Ultimately, the rapes of his wife and his best friend's wife proved too much. 
Parker's Turner undertakes a war of justifiable retribution against Southampton's depraved slave masters. Parker's Turner himself is the movie's selfless hero, and the way that Turner's final trip to Jerusalem evokes both Jesus' own passion and death and the surrender of William Wallace in Braveheart, a movie that clearly inspired Parker. Unlike Styron, Parker gave himself the latitude to present things differently from the way they were presented in Thomas R. Gray's compilation of Nat Turner's Confessions, the trial records, or the newspaper articles that document the revolt. But his overarching interpretation of slavery fits in well with the dominant ways that historians and the broader public understand slavery. Given that, do we really need someone to spend the months in the archives reading sources that offer no more than an admittedly incomplete and imperfect view of what happened on the ground in Southampton County? As the graduate student who once took that project on, my answer is yes. And the rest of the talk, I want to explain to you why and what history offers us. Let me begin as any historian should, with sources. The sources connected to the revolt are problematic, if for no other reason than that no source survives that was written about the revolt by someone sympathetic to the rebels. Whites, who hated the revolt, wrote all the contemporary accounts of the revolt. So there's good reason to ask if the racism of the authors corrupted the sources. Moreover, there was, as is not surprising, a great deal of uncertainty and confusion about the revolt. No one knew exactly what was going on. So much of what was written immediately after the revolt was little more than speculation or rumor. A newspaper account written shortly after the revolt uh, described the eruption of 150 or 200 runaway slaves from the Dismal Swamp, which was a location about 40 or 50 miles west of um, where the revolt began. Another early report described about how 250 Negroes from a camp meeting about the Dismal Swamp set on a, maraud a marauding exp uh, excursion. When a newspaper man from Richmond arrived in Southampton County, he observed that rumors had infinitely exaggerated the first swelling the number of Negroes to 1,000 or 1,200 men and representing its ramifications as embracing several of the adjacent counties, particularly Isle of Wight and Greenville. Greenville. Newspaper editors who were inundated with confused, panicked, and contradictory reports realized that all these stories couldn't be true at the same time. The revolt could not be both limited to Maroons, who had been in the Dismal Swamp, and involved thousands of blacks from three counties. Recognizing immediately the enormous problems with the reports that were making their way to towns like Richmond, Petersburg, and Norfolk, newspaper editors complained. The editor of the Richmond Enquirer grumbled, nothing is known with certainty. A rival Richmond editor added, there are reports in abundance but where are the facts to be relied on? A thing is stated at one moment, the next it is confirmed, and then again, it is contradicted. The editor of the Petersburg Intelligentsia carped, the rumors have been so numerous and contradictory that we are unable to state to our readers at present the precise state of affairs in Southampton County. When John Hampton Pleasance the editor of the Richmond Whig, returned to Richmond from Southampton, he observed, we have been astonished in reading over the mass of exchange papers accumulated in our absence to see the number of false, absurd, and idle rumors circulated by the press touching the insurrection in the country. Editors seem to have applied themselves to the task of alarming the public mind as much as possible by persuading the slaves to entertain high opinion of their strength and consequences. In September of uh, 
1831, on September 17th, a letter, a letter was penned in Southampton County. Sometimes this letter is wrongly attributed to Thomas R. Gray, the man who would eventually take down Nat Turner's confession. He, in this letter, whoever it is, and we don't know who it is, uh, likewise mocked what he understood to be groundless rumors. For, for example, there are rumors of his, Turner's, having been from home many days at a time, preaching in Richmond, Petersburg, Brunswick. There are, however, these are, however, entirely without foundation. The truth, the truth is, I've never heard of his preaching anywhere. He exhorted and sung at the neighborhood meeting, but no farther. Later, he noted, it is really amusing to trace to their sources many of the rumors which circulate through our country and which have fixed public opinion. Leaving out the view of the exaggerated arms being found at Branton, many more this and that and the other place, Nat preaching in Petersburg, Brunswick, and Richmond, not a word of which am I able to believe, though I have sought to have it corroborated from every respectable source. After Turner was captured in October, Thomas R. Gray, the man who published Turner's Confessions, began his address to the public with a simple assertion. The late insurrection in Southampton has greatly excited the public mind and led to a thousand idle, exaggerated, and mischievous reports. For Pleasance, for the unidentified author of the September 17th letter, and for Thomas R. Gray, the ubiquity of unreliable reports led them to produce more reliable accounts of what happened in Southampton County. After complaining about the widespread rumors, Pleasance noted that the truth is always the best policy and the best remedy. Pleasance was not the only one to commit himself to making reliable, reliable reports. In the September 17th letter from Southampton, the author noted that there are so many rumors afloat and so many misstatements in the public press that a sacred duty to my country demands a correct view of this tragedy. To get the correct view, this unnamed correspondent, as this unnamed correspondent described it, the writer described getting testimony from multiple sources, supported by collateral circumstances. Even Thomas R. Gray, who's uh, published the Confessions, which he claimed to be Turner's full and free confession, with little or no variation from his own words. Now, many scholars have questioned the reliability of Gray's account. How reliable was he at taking down Nat Turner's own words? And I spend an entire chapter in my book taking on that very question. My conclusion, and it's not only my conclusion, another recent book on Nat Turner by David Allmendinger reaches much the same point of view, is that he did what he said he was doing, which is pretty much writing down what Nat Turner told him. It makes it one of the most remarkable documents in American history. Here is the confessions of America's most famous slave rebel. While there was a conscientious effort by several people to produce more reliable accounts of the revolt, this was not because the men producing the accounts were motivated by humanity, wanting to be fair to Turner and his men. They didn't care about that. They were not motivated by Cleo, the muse of history, imagining that nearly 200 years after the revolt, people would gather in this lovely theater with the hope of finding out what really happened. Instead, their accounts emerged because there was an enormous split among whites in Southampton after the revolt. In the accounts, each of the authors refers somewhat condescendingly to the public, by which they meant other whites, people with few slaves. The notes, or few if any slaves, the notes that the public mind was variously excited, full of doubts, 
and misinformed by rumors. And at this point, I'm reading over this and I'm thinking, I've heard this split before about the people who don't know and the people who do. Is it a newspaper? No, it's actually my paper. But following the killing of white men, women, and children, popular passions raged against blacks. The public wanted revenge, some calling for the indiscriminate slaughter of blacks who were suspected. Ellen Lewis, who had spoken with several gentlemen who had visited Southampton, described it even more clearly. Should the blacks attempt to rise there again, they will be exterminated. The excitement is that great. Lewis was not the only person who alluded to a possible massacre of Southampton slaves. Although Richmond lawyer John Wickham claimed that he had no apprehensions himself, he's not worried, he noted that, quote, the excitement was so strong among the more ignorant that there was reason to apprehend a reaction which, if once begun, might be carried to dreadful lengths. William Henry Broadnax, who was in charge of Virginia's militia in Southampton County, took pride in the work that he did to contain the anti-black response. But he also clearly sensed that if the events at Southampton were repeated, he would be unable to do anything. The whole black race will be swept from among us. John Hampton Pleasance, the newspaper reporter who traveled to Southampton, had much the same impression. Let not the facts be doubted by those whom it concerns, he wrote, that another insurrection will be the signal for the extermination of the whole black population in the quarter of the state where it occurs. Slaveholding petitioners from Hanover County, I don't need to tell you where that is, called on the legislature to act. Will you wait until the land shall be deluged in blood and look alone to the final catastrophe, the extinction of the black races by force as the only remedy? Given the danger of the public overreacting in response to an exaggerated sense of the threat posed by blacks, slaveholders in Southampton turned to the careful collection of evidence as a way to secure their property. By thoroughly documenting the actual scale of the revolt, the leaders of Southampton hoped to, as Gray claimed in the Confessions, to remove doubt and conjectures from the public mind, which otherwise must have remained. Removing doubts would lead to a certain way of understanding the revolt. And that way of understanding the revolt, that it was small, that it was limited, that it was not that dangerous, would ultimately lead to the securing of slave property. The efforts to reassure non-slaveholding whites by showing that the slave rebels hadn't posed a significant danger were remarkably successful. And it really does not matter what kind of records one uses. You can look at the tax records, you can look at the trial records, you can look at the newspaper accounts. They all agree the number of, the black, of blacks killed without trials after the revolt was somewhere in the 30s. It took longer to establish confidence in the public mind that most blacks were not involved in the revolt. But within a few years, it is clear that in the places where, where white non-slaveholders had the most sway, and I look at this in my book, in the region's Baptist churches, and where the slaveholders had not made the same concerted efforts to get beyond the most exaggerated rumors, and I'm here referring to court cases in Sussex County, Virginia, people ultimately, white people, ultimately accepted the Southampton, that the Southampton courts got it right. The revolt, they believed, was a small affair that posed a relatively minor threat. Based upon their understanding of the Nat Turner revolt, there was no need to kill all the blacks. 
to colonize all the slaves in Liberia, or, as the Virginia legislature debated the following year, to abolish slavery. Virginia was not on the cusp of another Haitian revolution. And that's absolutely critical that they, the Virginians, saw that. Because if they had believed that, the white Virginians might have done something differently. The fact that the way they got people to realize the situation in Southampton was based on making a concerted effort to accurately represent what happened in August of 1831 means that the sources about the revolt, especially the letters I've referred to, but I'll also add here the trials and even the petitions that the Virginia Library has just this month crowdsourced to put online, means that the evidence about the revolt is among the most remarkable caches that we have in terms of sources on slavery. For so many sources, the rhetorical agenda of the authors ultimately make the sources less useful to a historian. Now, maybe a slaveholder will sit there and say, oh, the slaves all love slavery. Well, that's not very helpful. Um, you know, maybe, a, maybe an abolitionist will say slavery is awful. Again, they've got a goal. It's not so helpful. But it's the, here, it's exactly the rhetorical agenda where one author saw a sacred duty to my country to properly resent, represent what happened means that we have a series of incredibly useful sources that I think historians have not taken advantage of and tapped as they should. So with the time I have left, let me tell you some stories about what these sources reveal. And let me tell you a couple vignettes focusing on some of the people who were caught up in the revolt. I'll begin with Hubbard's story. When the rebels arrived at Catherine Whitehead's plantation on the morning of Monday, 22nd August, 1831, they caught the family and the family's slaves completely by surprise. The rebels killed Richard Whitehead outside the house and then killed Catherine and several of her daughters. Margaret Whitehead, who was the only person Turner killed, uh, was among the dead. By the time that the Greenville militia arrived on the plantation, they found the bodies and, and the, Whitehead's, uh, the Whitehead's family's slaves. The slaves told the whites that they had remained loyal to the Whiteheads, but one local white identified him as a rebel who he had seen at the battle. The troops from Greenville shot him. He fell dead near the remains of his mistress. The other slaves who remained on the plantation also proclaimed their loyalty to the whites, their innocence. Wallace, an old Negro man, claimed that he had shown the most incredible loyalty to Catherine Whitehead. When Will, one of the rebels, grabbed Whitehead, Wallace begged the rebel to spare the life of his mistress. The plea had no effect on Will, the man Nat Turner would call my executioner. After killing Whitehead, the rebels threatened Wallace, who reportedly answered that he cared not to live now that she was dead. Well, I don't need to tell you whites were skeptical of Wallace's claims, but they were even more skeptical of the claims of of the story of Hubbard. According to him, Harriet Whitehead, one of Catherine Whitehead's daughters, had survived the revolt, in large part because of his efforts. Harriet had hidden between the mattress next to the spot where her own sister had been killed, and the rebels never found her. Once the rebels left the plantation, Hubbard and some of the other slaves decided to secrete Harriet away from the house in case the rebels returned again. As it turned out, the decision was prudent. After some of the rebels, uh, after some time after the rebels left the Whitehead plantation, they realized they hadn't killed everyone there. They realized that Harriet was still alive. Recognizing their oversight, the rebels sent two unnamed men back to the Whitehead plantation to kill Harriet. While the assassins were walking back to the Whitehead house, two slaves were trying to help. Uh, the slaves were trying to help Harriet and they had placed her in a disguise and were carrying her away from the house. When they saw the two rebels returning, 
some of the whitehead slaves went immediately to meet them and to convince them by some means to turn their course. The rebels assigned to kill the last whitehead were delayed and misdirected until the other slaves could get Harriet to a swamp near the house. Foiled by the slaves at the whitehead plantation, the rebels never found Harriet, the only white member of her house who survived the revolt. The story was a good one, and I'm sure he told it to the militia who was there asking them what he had done during the revolt. But whites remained suspicious of Hubbard, especially since the story implied that Harriet should have been able to confirm the story. But she was not around, in part because she was scared too. She had narrowly escaped both the initial assault and the assassination squad that the rebels had sent to the plantation. Even if these men had stopped looking for her, the rebel army that had killed her entire family was still at large. She didn't want to be found. An account of her escape written decades after the revolt suggests that her uncertainty was more profound than just an understandable fear of the rebels. She apparently feared the slaves who saved her life. According to this account, Harriet wondered if the slaves who had twice already saved her life would keep her safe. Maybe they would change her, their mind and turn her over to the rebels. Harriet decided that the risk was too great, so she moved from the spot where Hubbard had hidden her, and when Hubbard returned to the spot, she was gone. Understandably perplexed by her disappearance, Hubbard incorrectly concluded that she had been killed by the rebels, and there was no one there to confirm his story of loyalty. Harriet's, Harriet Whitehead's doubts and Hubbard's confusions almost had a fatal result. Because the men in the Greenville militia were unwilling to believe what the slaves had told them, they decided to execute Hubbard as one of the murderers. When Harriet Whitehead heard this, she ran out and saved him by relating the circumstances of his, convict, uh, his conduct in aid to save her life. As the person in best position to convince the vengeful whites that Hubbard deserved to be spared, Harriet saved his life no less certainly than he had saved hers. Consider the case of Thomas Haithcock. Thomas Haithcock was a free black who was at home when Jack and Andrew, two young slaves who fled the Whitehead plantation when the rebels appeared, showed up. The rebels had left word that Jack and Andrew should join them, and Jack and Andrew were young, and they didn't know what they should do. They went to Thomas Haithcock, a nearby free black's house, and asked them what they should do. They asked Haithcock which they must do, whether they must go or not. Haithcock's response was unambiguous. They must go. He added that he would go with them as soon as he could get something to eat. Thomas Haithcock then told his wife to make haste and get him something to eat. I just see him sitting there. Get me a sandwich, woman. I got a war to fight. Thomas Haithcock's unnamed white may have fed her husband, but not before she told him what she thought of his plan. She entreated him not to go, but her pleas fell on deaf ears. Thomas Haithcock went off with Jack and Andrew in pursuit of the rebels. At some point in the 24 hours after the encounter at Parker's Farm, the battle where the rebels were first defeated, Heathcock found Nat Turner and the rebels. They told him what had happened, including that Nat and the company had a fight with the white people. Following the rebels' defeat, Turner himself was making his way west towards Belfield, which would take him back to the neighborhood where the rebels had been. Haithcock was charged with finding out if there was anyone at Benjamin Edwards' farm who would be willing to join the army that Turner was trying to reassemble. Despite this evidence against Haithcock, all of which came from investigations into him and, uh, and the slave trials, he was acquitted. He appears on the 1832 tax list, although by the time the tax collector came by, I will add, Thomas Haithcock did not live on the same farm as his wife and his daughter, both of whom had testified against him. 
Consider the clash between Burwell and Exum artist. Immediately after the revolt, whites were too scared to communicate directly, so they sent slaves between farms as messengers. Bowling Barrett had sent the slave Burwell to Lemuel Stories, James Stories, and William Vicks to request them, with their families, to go to Mrs. Gurley's to keep guard. Burwell delivered the message, but not without incident. He later testified that when he arrived at Vicks, the free black Exum artist interrupted him. Artists' attempt to cut the White's line of communication failed, but when Burwell told Anderson not to interfere with him, artists' inability to convince Burwell to stop helping the Whites in the middle of a slave revolt made Artist very mad. That's a quote. When Burwell headed back to Mrs. Gurley's, as he had been instructed, Artist followed him and threatened him with a pistol. The clash between the slave Burwell and the free black Exum Artist embodied the dramatic differences that existed in the black community as some, including Artist, decided to support the revolt while others elected to support the whites. But perhaps the most interesting, and I think perhaps the most representative characters in this episode, were the unnamed blacks that witnessed the escalating fight between Burwell and Artist. When Artist caught up to Burwell, he began yelling, threatening Burwell. As Burwell recalled, Artist made some considerable noise. At this point, the blacks at Mrs. Gurley's farm told Artist to quiet down. They told him if he kept such a noise, the whites would come and shoot them or carry them to jail. Much like the white response to the uncertainty, the larger black community adopted pragmatic response to the revolt. They focused on surviving. To accomplish this, most blacks thought that the best way to stay alive was avoid to, do, to avoid doing anything that might draw attention to themselves. Let me end with the story of J. Fitzhugh's Drew's, excuse me, J. Drew Fitzhugh's unnamed slave, the story that Robert E. Lee referred to in the letter I found at the Virginia Historical Society archives. On Wednesday, that's right upstairs, on Wednesday, August 24th, after the revolt had been suppressed, but before the whites had any idea that they had won, two captured slaves told the whites that the rebels were intending to rally and revenge their defeat from the morning at Samuel Blunt's plantation. Based on this intelligence, whites decided to reinforce the men already at the plantation. Alexander P. Pete the man who led the first group of white militiamen who encountered the rebels, took about 10 men to go to Blunt's home and defend it should it be attacked. So there's this rumor that the blacks are going to rally and attack this plantation. These reinforcements brought the total number of whites defending Blunt's plantation to 16, not counting the plantation's uh, owner. This force was significantly stronger than the one that had repelled the rebels the day before. It was six whites in the plantation house when the rebels actually had made their first raid. They had come down looking for, for allies, and they didn't realize that the house had been occupied by whites. And so they got, they got bushwhacked. They got, they got ambushed. Perhaps drawing on their experience from the first attack at Blunt's plantation, the whites did one more thing to prepare themselves for the attack they decided to arm Blunt's slaves. Although the whites would later use the events at Blunt's plantation to tout the loyalty of the slaves, during the revolt, the whites saw black support as uncertain at best. Blacks on the plantation swore fidelity to whites, but whites at the time thought this loyalty was conditional. And while concerns with black loyalty were not enough to prevent the whites from arming the slaves, and I think it's a fair sign of the confusion and uncertainty that a day after the whites had defeated the rebel army, whites were still so afraid of the slaves that they armed, the slaves, that they armed slaves they didn't trust completely. But whites were not oblivious to the possibility that blunt slaves would join the rebellion after the whites handed them guns. To reduce the opportunity for armed slaves to defect, 
whites restricted the black access to guns to those times when they thought an attack was about to happen. At the other times, the whites kept the arms that they had set to the side, they had set to the side for the slaves under a guard near the door. The rebel army never returned to Blunt's plantation, but that did not mean that the guns remained neatly stacked through the night. Several times, the word came that the rebels were near. In response, whites armed the slaves and waited. Now, the rebels didn't have an army at this point, so nothing ever happened. And when the whites became satisfied that their fears of an impending attack were unfounded, they went back and collected the slaves' weapons um, and put, the, put them under the guard at the door. Early morning, Wednesday, um, just before dawn, the alarm sounded again. The blacks on the plantation went to pick up their guns, and it was at this point that one of the whites, a young man by the name of Harris, spotted a slave belonging to J. Drew Fitzhugh with a gun in his hand. Harris shot and killed Fitzhugh's slave. The story of the Southampton Slave Rebellion produced an incredible amount of detail about what was happening. And in it, we can see the way that the revolt divided Southampton County. Both the whites and the blacks were divided in very understandable ways. They were divided in ways that ultimately showed the weakness, the difficulty of organizing a slave revolt. It's often thought that a slave revolt is fairly easy to organize, but it isn't. They usually fail. With the exception of the Haitian Revolution, it's very unusual to see a slave revolt fail. And one of the things we forget when we watch the movies is we think it's easy. It's not. People are thinking a lot of different things at the same time. Slave revolts are hard. At the same time, we can see the confusion and uncertainty in the white community. The white community was deeply divided in response to the revolt, not because they were divided about the slave revolt, although there are some indications of, uh, of anti-slavery sentiment in, among whites in Southampton County. But they were deeply divided, just as the blacks were, they were deeply divided about what should be done. And the ultimate story of the Nat Turner Revolt is the story about how the elites were able to stop the, and we have a word for it, but they didn't, but the genocidal impulses that were sweeping through Southampton County in August and September of 1831. I believe that I have, why, we have time for some questions. So if anyone has questions about the Nat, Nat Turner slave revolt, I'll be glad to take them. Yeah, interesting, uh, interesting talk. Uh, you spoke uh, at uh, about documents and archives. Uh, but when you're doing that, particularly in, in the slave period, what sort of documents and archives are firsthand that capture the perspective of the slaves themselves? Well, I, I, I mean, none. That's, that's the big problem, is that there aren't any sort. I mean, the only sources that the best sources to catch the perspective of slaves remains slave narratives. Uh, the, the stories written but mainly by slaves who escaped slavery. Uh, there are also stories uh, told in the WPA interviews that were recorded in the 1930s. But there are very, very few of these documents. And the documents that do exist are really precious. Um, so we don't have first-person accounts, except for Nat Turner's of what was happening in the black community. And I want to point out that the confessions, what was happening he saw in the, in the confessions, was completely compatible with what, um, with what these other accounts were, were describing, a deeply divided black community, a deeply divided, well, he doesn't have as much information on the white community. Um, but how do we get the stories of the splits between Burwell and uh, artists? These are stories that come up in sources that are written down by whites. But I think that we can really see what Burwell's doing, and we can see what Artis is doing. 
You know, think about the story of the unnamed slave who dies. Why was he defending? Why was he defending his masters who really didn't trust him? I mean, that's the important thing. The masters, you know, that whole idea that there's this, you know, this, no, they, I mean, during the slave revolt, whites are really scared of their slaves, but they're even more scared of the rebels. But why would Drew ally with the whites? In that case, I think, the, I mean, you know, can we understand it? Well, there's no one asked him. Of course, he's dead, so we don't know. But his family was on that plantation. Was he afraid that if the rebels took this plantation, the whites would come in and kill? Did he have a child who he was afraid might get swept up in the rebellion, willingly or unwillingly? And if that happened, that child would be executed? I don't know. We don't know this. But we have to go through and try to piece together their point of view from these white sources. And what I'm trying to argue, or one of the things I try to argue, is these sources are much better than we realize for doing just that. I think we can see the richness. Uh, we can see what Hubbard's up to. We can see what these people are doing, even if we don't have their own autobiography. Uh, I will point out there is one other source. The trial records are very thin, but blacks are allowed to testify. Uh, many people know that blacks aren't allowed to testify against whites during slavery, but blacks are allowed to testify against other blacks. So that would be another situation where we are actually able to get uh, blacks' own accounts of what happens. I, I remember at the time of the publication of Styron's novel that um, it was a great uh, critical and commercial success. But it also prompted uh, several black critics to speak out. And, and there was actually a book published, as I recall, called 10 Black Writers Respond. Right. I was, I'm interested, what was the nature of their criticism, and did Siren respond to them? Oh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a cat fight for about five years. One of the reasons why I don't think there's been as much work done on Nat Turner was because of the huge, everyone was so upset after these fights that no one wanted to touch it. And so it took a scholar. I mean, one of the things I, I came up after that, so I, I did. I missed that firsthand experience. Um, yeah, no, there's a huge fight, and I think that there's sort of two problems. Uh, the easy one, uh, which I think is, it was too easy and too cheap. I didn't think it worked really well. But the easy one was that he made mistakes, right? There were some things that he got wrong, and the most important of those is that Nat Turner had a wife, and he missed the source that says Nat Turner has a wife. So he got some things wrong. But that's not really the complaint, and I don't think that they were able to, they, they, they were so upset at so much that came out. I mean, this is at the height of black power, that this white Southern author sort of spoke in Nat Turner's voice and represented it. Uh, that drove them crazy. But what especially drove them crazy, I think, was the fact that Nat Turner had to make his novel work put the black rapist at the heart of it, exactly as the original Birth of a Nation had. And that was really, really problematic for a lot of people who saw this as a political thing. What are we doing? We're re-invoking the stereotypes that have been used to hurt, so, hurt and kill so many blacks over such a long period of time. And so that, that, was a, that was the thing that I think really, I don't think anyone sort of put it that tightly, but I think that that was the most infuriating part of the, of the, of the book um, for the critics, most of whom were black, and thought that this book was just out of bounds. There's a book called The Southampton Insurrection, yep. uh, and I, that was written by William Drury, yep. and he supposedly interviewed survivors. Yep. And I, I just thought, it's been many, many years since I've read it, but it did have very detailed information at the back, the trials, who, who was executed, who wasn't, list of, of the... Um, whites who were killed, and I just thought that was a, a, a good source. That's a great source. Um, and now, it's problematic as, I mean, it, this is published in 1900 uh, as a dissertation and then a book. Uh, Drury is a family member of people who, he was from Southampton County, and he says, so he's going up to do a dissertation, what are you going to do it on? Well, how about the slave rebellion that took place? So it's the first sort of academic history of the revolt. Um, it's deeply problematic because he, and this is very common in 1900, but he thought slavery was basically a good, benign institution. Um, it, the one thing about the book that doesn't make a lot of sense is why did they rebel? Because it's so nice. He called them the happiest laboring, he called, it, he called them the happiest laboring class in the world. And it's like, the book just doesn't make sense now. Um, you know, anyway, uh, so it's problematic. Uh, and, and historians have, 
uh, have really had huge problems with it. That said, its footnotes are fabulous because he will sit there and he'll sit, make an assertion and then he'll quote Lavania Francis, one of the survivors who he interviews. And so you have these sort of first person accounts of what happened written 60 years later. Now you gotta handle that carefully. But those, I mean, you know, we don't have as much information as we like. So that is a really interesting but problematic source. But it's a good one to point out to everyone. In, in your research, did you come across a close encounter with George Thomas's family and the, the slave revolt? Yeah, and as it gets later, it gets closer. Um, <laughs> the, the rebels uh, had, after the battle at Parker's plantation, what happened is there's a battle, and, and it, both sides basically scatter. Uh, and, and in fact, I, they, they, I mean, no, no one's been involved in a battle before, either the slaves or the planters. I mean, they're just like, well, ah. So everyone, you know, it's, they start. They see each other with guns, and they like run. Um, the uh, the the first group of whites who come to the thing uh, bolt after the first shot is fired because they turn because the shot brings the blacks' attention, and all the blacks with guns are looking at them, and so they they scatter. Turner and his men go and follow the um, running whites, trying to you know sort of destroy this white force. When lo and behold, another force that had heard the shots had created an ambush line. And when the rebels hit that ambush line, they scattered. And at that point, the rebels go in every different direction. So Southampton, that afternoon, is going to have rebel, rebel forces running around trying to reconstitute. Well, some of them aren't going to be trying to reconstitute. Some of them are going to say, time to get out of here. But um, some of them are going to be reco reconstituting. It's at that time they go by George Thomas's house. And, and in, the, in the sort of mythology, George Thomas's house is, you know, it's barely escapes and all that stuff. But at that point in the revolt, no more whites are getting killed anywhere. So it doesn't seem like it was really a close encounter, like a, you know, that close to being killed. Um, but he certainly was, he was there. Um, this is, you know, uh, the Rock of Chickama Chickamauga um, Union General. Um, he ends up going to West Point five years later and becoming a union, uh, an army officer, and then eventually stays in the Union, um, much to the chagrin of his family who stays in the South. Yes, do you consider Nat Turner a highly educated man as presented in William Styron's book and also in this current Birth of a Nation? The, uh, the, one of the most interesting lines in the Confessions of Nat Turner, Th uh, Thomas R. Gray, who's taking it down, obviously hates Nat Turner. I mean, he's the white lawyer writing down his, uh, writing down his account. And he says at one point, you know, I, the blood, my blood curdled when I looked on him. You know, he didn't like him. But one of the things he comments on is he goes, he's as intelligent as anyone I've ever met. It's like, what? You know, this is, this is sort of this unsympathetic white audience. You go in and you talk to this guy for a few hours and he seems really smart. Um, and in fact, I think he's smarter than either Styron or um, Nate Parker presents him. Uh, Nate Parker's, um, Nat Turner's a little bit slow, actually. Um, it takes a lot of the violence and awfulness of slavery to make him recognize eventually slavery is a bad system. He's sort of oblivious, and Nate Parker takes him through this. It's not like when he, when he fights back, he's really, really smart. I mean, there's not, I don't see that. Um, William Styron's is sort of a smart, conflicted intellectual. Um, but I think when you look at his strategies and what he decides to do, he's always, he's not playing checkers, he's playing chess. I mean, they've been thinking about this revolt for a long time. And the one reason we know about Nat Turner's revolt is because it happened. And why did it happen when all the other plots didn't? Well, one of the reasons why, because he recognized the dangers in the black community. You know, if the word got out and too many people heard about it, someone was going to tell their master, mistress, or friend, or whatever, you know, by the way, you shouldn't be in town this weekend. And, you know, at that point, the whites are going to find out about it. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why there aren't a lot of slave revolts. So Nat Turner did something that was really dangerous. I mean, this was a long shot. Slave revolts are long shots. But he said, you know what? We're going to start with no one. We're just going to start with seven of us. No weapons, no anything. And then we're going to just, we're going to be, we're going to make such a scene that blacks are going to join us. And it's a bet that didn't work, but no one had ever tried that before. 
No one had ever said, hey, you know, what will the black community do when a slave rebel army appears in the middle of the South? And it was worth, I mean, you know, he thought that was worth a try. And frankly, if you're trying to think of how, you know, you put yourself in the point of view of a slave, you're like, I decided I want to resist. How are you going to do it? There's not many better plans. So he, he and, every, you know, he's constantly doing things that make sense until you get to the very end, uh, at which point there's no army left. At that point, his decisions, there's no good options. But before that, he's just doing stuff like he's bringing the army together and he's breaking it apart. He recognizes what's going. He's very quick at seeing what's happening. Um, and, and, you know, and that is, and, you know, and I think that that's got to be part of his story. I don't think, you know, Thomas Gray is not making him seem really smart because he admires this guy or he wants to puff him up. Um, you know, he's really, he, he actually is a really smart guy. I don't think there's a doubt about that. Do you think that uh, Nat Turner's rebellion had a great bearing on Virginia seceding from the Union 30 years later? Well, um, my argument is it almost had a great relation to it not succeeding from the Union 30 years later. Um, if the slave owners weren't able to convince themselves that slave property, that slave property was safe, you know, that slave property wouldn't kill you, eventually Virginia would enact a gradual emancipation scheme as they discussed in the immediate aftermath of the revolt. In 1832, they discuss a gradual emancipation scheme. Now, if Virginia is doing gradual emancipation in 1830, the largest slaveholding state in 1861 isn't the largest slaveholding state in 1861 anymore. The Civil War at that point becomes South Carolina, and it's just completely different. Uh, history is extraordinarily contingent I believe that, and I think one of the things that happens is we want to draw these direct lines. Uh, Nat Turner's revolt almost led to uh, uh, Virginia adopting gradual emancipation. I mean, it wasn't that close. It was like 60-40 was the vote. But that's 60-40 that's voting against their most valuable form of property. Can you imagine a vote in our Congress, 60-40 against IRAs? Uh, not going to happen. I mean, you know, you know, Bernie Sanders says, yeah, I think we should get rid of him. And everyone else says, no. I mean, no, it's just, you know, that is, um, that's, that's a different, that's a different, uh, uh, that's a different world. So it is clearly connected. And if the slaveholders weren't able to convince themselves that slavery was sustainable long term, you're not going to have the same civil war. Thank you. That was a terrific talk. Um, I have a question about um, Nat Turner's religion. Yes. That is, it's always been hard to understand why he killed so many women and children. Um, is there a way of reading this uh, rebellion as something inspired by Turner's uh, interpretation of his faith as opposed to a more strictly secular reading of this as a, a rebellion against slavery. One of the things, the, thank you, one of the things the movie handles well is, look, I mean, if you're Old Testament, if you believe the Old Testament and, Jesus, you know, and God comes in and takes out uh, you know, one-tenth of the Egyptians, you know, it's not that hard to get your head around the idea that God would command you to do something like this. You know, if you're just the New Testament Jesus stuff, that's... It's a little bit harder. Um, maybe you throw Paul in, it gets a little easier. You know, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Um, but there's no doubt he sees it in religious terms. He believes God told him to do this. I mean, he thinks God talks to him in the world. I, and he's not alone in that. This is actually my Smithsonian piece is, is on this. Um, but so he sees this in completely religious terms. And he, and he doesn't have a hard time understanding it. The Bible would tell you to do something like that. That actually makes sense to him. What is the issue is, well, why would they kill women and children? Why didn't God just tell them to kill the men? Um, and that, I think, is actually one of the, the strategy that he came up with and the rebels came up with that was actually pretty insightful. Uh, they hadn't done recruiting. So how are they going to get noticed by the other slaves? What can they do that's so outlandish? And it was killing women and children. They, killed, they, they hit a school, and they killed 10 kids at the school. Um, you know, that's, they think they're going to show the blacks in the area, you can stand up to whites. Now, no one had tried recruiting like that, but there was, you know, this, this level of, you know, how are you going to get people to very quickly see that the whites are a paper tiger? 
and attacking their most vulnerable points, attacking the women and children, was one of it. Now, this is also clear. The black, you know, the rebels aren't a rebel force that all agrees with each other. Um, they debate this. You know, when they, there's a debate about when they, they realize that they left a sleeping child at the first house, a baby. And they're like, well, should we go back? And then someone says, well, we agreed we're going to kill everyone, up to a point. After they secured some sort of position, they had secured an army and some land, then they weren't going to kill women and children anymore. And that's also perfectly clear from the evidence. So this was, a, this was a tactic. This was something that he was doing temporarily. And he didn't have any problems with it because the Bible, certainly if you're a religious person, gives you grounds of sort of pursuing this kind of policy. Um, so I think it was completely religious. I, you know, he he's clearly sees it as religious. And I don't think it's very hard for a smart person to square it with, with, with the Bible. And I think the strategy actually makes as much sense as anything else.